Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Welcome to the SLP Now podcast. We are in for a treat today. We have a bit of a unicorn for our guest speaker. Uh, Rose Griffin is an ASHA certified speech language pathologist and a board certified behavior analyst. There are very few SLP BCBAs out there in the world, so she's definitely unique and she has a very amazing set of experiences and just a wealth of knowledge to share with us. She's the founder of ABA Speech. She creates therapy materials and she has a tremendous amount of resources, everything that we would need to work with students with autism, um, and she's super passionate about helping those students increase their language skills, and she just does it in such a skillful and practical way. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce Rose Griffin. Hi, happy to be here. I'm so excited to hear from you about all things high school. You have a really amazing breadth of experience in that area, and can you start it up? Start us off just telling us a little bit about your experience um, and like which population you work with now and what it's looked like over time. Yeah, definitely. So I've been a speech language pathologist for about 16 years now. I can't believe it. I'm feeling like I'm kind of seasoned. I can kind of use that word to describe myself. And also it's been eight years since I've also been duly certified as a board certified behavior analyst. And so I really loved working with students with autism. I can remember my first student teaching experience. I had a uh, mentor who had some very severe um, students who had autism and I really just loved working with them. I thought it was very challenging, very rewarding. And so I've really focused on that uh, population and trying to help them. I love working with all students, but it seems that when you love working with students with problem behavior and students with autism that you tend to just kind of get a lot of clients like that because it can be really hard to um, reach that population. And so right now I'm currently a school-based therapist three days a week and I work in a middle school, high school, and then I work one day a week at an ABA type school for students with autism. And I really love kind of those both, uh, those different settings because both have their pros and their cons and I like kind of um, seeing the students in, thrive in both of those settings. That's so amazing. And so what does your caseload look like at the middle or at both of the locations? Yeah. So at the middle school, high school, I have, you know, I'm three days a week there. So I have all different types of students. I have students with more severe autism up to students who um, have, have stuttering as a disability and up to students who just need somebody to check in on social skills or comprehension and all those higher level skills. So I work a lot collaboratively with intervention specialists, the teachers, and I really love that and being able to kind of push in 
in uh, more so when the students get a little bit older for students who are a little bit higher functioning to see how they're applying the skills and things like that. So it can be anything from real intensive, more ABA type uh, instruction to things where I might be checking on somebody quarterly for their fluency. And I really like being able to serve each student really individually. I'm really able to kind of do that um, in the district that I work in. And then at the ABA type center, that's a year round program. And so my students there range from elementary through high school age and it's more intensive. And so I work real closely with a lot of those students have somebody who's a one on one instructor. And so I work real closely with showing them modeling how to work on communication because the communication is worked on um, really in both places. But, you know, it's worked on when the student is not in speech therapy. I know that somebody is also working on those communication programs when um, I am not around, which is really exciting because that's how we really make progress for students with more intense needs. Yeah, no, that's so important. And it's, I love the, because there's a lot of research on that piece too, where like there, we need that many more repetitions for them to be able to put all of those new concepts together. Um, so that's super smart. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's very collaborative. So I, that's really, I think, and the longer that I've been in this field, if you're newer to the field, I would say that's my best piece of advice is to make sure that you know everybody on the team. And sometimes, you know, when you're working with students with more intense needs, the team can be 15 people because it could be a school-based therapist, a private therapist, an outside consultant, a parent, parent advocate, you know, it gets job coach. Um, it gets really complicated and just trying to touch base with those people and know who they are and having an open dialogue even if we're not always agreeing on everything, I think is a real important piece into helping students, especially students who are older who might be getting ready for competitive employment and vocational sampling. And then you're dealing with adult services and people from outside agencies and things like that as well. Yeah, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> Lots of people to keep track of. Yeah. Uh, so I'm really curious now, because we're focusing on more of the life skills students in our right. talk today. Um, and I kind of want to start from the very beginning. Um, like what do, recommendations do you have when planning assessments for those students? That's such a good question. I think what's so important is the ABA center that I work at sends out a questionnaire for parents and and we in the public school also talk with our parents we have really open communication but i love the questionnaire because sometimes even if you're communicating with parents you may not understand exactly where they're coming from or you may not understand what's really important to them so you know i've had meetings before where maybe i'm working on a, a device with a student and then you get to the iep meeting and the parents are happy but then they ask you to put on a vocal goal to work on a co-ed training or verbal imitation and then you kind of are thinking well where did that come from, you know? So I think kind of having that, starting with that parental piece and, and seeing what's really important for the parent. It's obviously your clinical expertise and we, you know, do assessments and we collaborate with all the staff. But I do think having an idea of really what's important for the parents is so very important because I just think now that I have three kids of my own, how much pressure it is to come into an IEP meeting, especially when there may be a lot of people around the table and we're talking about potentially all the things that are really troubling and difficult for your for your child. That's got to be really daunting. And I, I kind of realize that the more that I get into the field, so making sure that we listen to the parents, we hear them, we make sure that they get a draft early of the IEP so they can give us feedback. I think that's critical in working with these students. And as far as assessment, I mean, I, I think that 
when we're working with students with more intense needs, I like the communication matrix. I like the functional communication profile. Those are things that we usually readily have available, but there are other things kind of from the other world that I'm in, the behavioral world. There's um, an assessment called the AFLS, A-F-L-S. And it's a really cool assessment because it has a whole section on leisure. It has a whole section on um, ideas related to activities of daily living. So it would be something that you do collaboratively with a, with a teacher. And there are things on social skills, basic academics, communication. And I think it just is a little bit more specific and lets you kind of tease out what would be important for your student to work on and so I really like that assessment and so sometimes we will use that and I really think it helps you get a really robust um, you know intervention plan for students and can you tell us a little bit more about the communication matrix and the functional communication profile yeah so the communication matrix is a free online tool that I that's so amazing yeah <laughs> I think I started using it maybe seven years ago just because I had a student who I knew was not going to be able to perform on a standardized test. We weren't going to be able to get much information. And so I like to use those types of tools. If I'm working with a student who is really at that language level that's, that's so impaired that you want to use something like that, I remember sitting and working with the teacher and also the paraprofessionals that were working with that student. Because while I may be servicing the student and seeing the student maybe once even twice a week, there are other people who are going to be working with the student and may be able to answer some of the guiding questions that they have on that measure. And so if you just Google that, it comes up and it's a free online tool. So it's a really cool, a really cool tool when you need it. Yeah. And what do you do? So can you tell us a little bit more about what it actually looks like and how you use that to oh, sure yeah you have their guiding i haven't used it in a, in a couple years but you there are guiding questions that help you kind of set up a user profile and then it will ask you different questions and it's all kind of dependent upon what how you answered it and it will give you information on you know what level learner you have and then ideas for what would be potential intervention goals for that student. So I think that's kind of nice because sometimes when we have students who are not going to perform on a standardized test, it's just not going to give us a good snapshot. It's not going to be powerful information to plan intervention, that that can be a really nice thing to set up. And then that's kind of like the functional communication profile is more of a booklet and it goes through all the different types of uh, areas of language. And, you know, it looks at social skills and all the different parts of language. And it can be nice because you can just go through with paraprofessionals and, and teachers if you're able to include them and you can kind of go through and say like, oh, this is something that's a strength. This is something that we could work on because a lot of the times if you're not going to get a standardized score for a student and if you're working in a place where you don't have to administer a standardized test, those other resources might be more powerful as far as planning your intervention for students. Yeah, I love a lot of different things about that because it gives us an opportunity to open up that conversation and get feedback from the team. And then if they were in on the evaluation and identifying the needs, then they'll be more likely to collaborate with us. Um, and then it's also really nice from an IEP perspective because it's breaking things down where it's really easy to identify the needs, but also the strengths. Because if we give them a standardized test and they get, like, they don't even get any items correct, then, like, that's, it's really nice to be able to bring up those strengths in the meeting, too. 
Yes, yes, I think that's really nice because we want to be able to say, you know, this is what the student can do. This is where we want to get for the student to help them really be the most independent communicator that they can be, especially as a student gets older. We know that we may not necessarily be able to close some kind of gap for students, but we, as they get older, really think about how can I help the student be the most independent communicator? How can I help this student learn vocational skills so they could potentially have competitive employment? And how could we help this student have leisure skills? Because a lot of the times the students that we work with have very impaired leisure skills and that really isolates them even from their family if there's not shared things that they can do together it makes them feel very isolated in the community should they have problem behavior that is a barrier to them accessing the community and so we try to do a lot of community-based instruction that has you know one year we took all the kids it was amazing right to the library because it was right by our school and so we did a whole task analysis which is just breaking up uh, in a very baby steps how to to check out a book using a self-scan with your library card and so we took a video so it was video modeling and then we had baselined all the kids being able to do it and then before we would do the checkout everybody would come and watch me this video I had completed and then they would go and do the skill because there's so much research on video modeling and so we really want to just make sure that everything that we're working on for our students that we can really explain why it's so functional for them for their life. Yeah, I love that. And it's really looking at what do they need to have a good quality of life and have a, like a, yeah, a good life, a happy, good life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Happiness. That's important. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And you get to play a part in that every yes. day, which is really awesome. Yeah, um, I love it. So we kind of started touching on this a little bit, but so you've gathered all of this data, you know what the parents' priorities are, you've collaborated with the teachers and getting their feedback on how the student is performing, what the strengths and needs are. So how do you put that all together and how, like, do you have any favorite strategies in terms of generating goals for the IEP? Yeah, I think that what's so important, if you're able to do it, and I think everybody has different ways that they write goals, but what I try to really do with my teachers for even, you know, higher students, lower students who are kind of struggling is to have shared goals with the teachers. So if we're working in a public school, trying to discuss with the intervention specialist or special education teacher, whatever um, you call them in your state, uh, ways that you could have shared goals. So if we have a student who has a vocational goal and maybe they're working on recycling or they're shredding papers, how can we come up with a step-by-step -step way to teach them those skills? And how can we, obviously communication is gonna be embedded in there. So I have a student who's working on shredding, so she orients to the teacher, she uses a device to say, do you have any shredding? And she makes that all on her own. You know, I have another student who's working on recycling. So following the one-step direction, like it's time to do recycling, get the recycling box. Um, can they do that independently? There's so much communication that's embedded that I try to make sure that the goals are shared when possible because I know that during my time with the student, I'm working on those. And I also know that when I'm not present in the classroom, that they're also being run either by the paraprofessional who I collaborate with to make sure they understand the vision for the goals and how we should be prompting and things of that nature, and also will be run by the teacher if possible. 
Yeah, that's so smart. And can you give us just like a handful of different ideas? So you talked about writing goals around shredding, around recycling. What other types of areas might you focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to have a vocational goal, especially as students get older. And I think what's so hard at the middle school, high school level is you kind of have to be a detective in your own building. You have to kind of seek out these opportunities for work within your own building. Because as students go into high school, then they might have other opportunities based on your district to job sample outside of the school. But in middle school, you really need to kind of set those up. And so we have students who work in our cafeteria who are stocking snacks and stocking silverware. We have students who are making copies for teachers. And we have a student who, uh, I loved this one goal. I had a student who was working on working in the library. So I was really almost like a job coach. I kind of hung back and tried to give the students space. And they had to, you know, say, I'm here for my job. And every, every week it was something different. And we made a video model for that, how to sort the book by color and alphabetical order. It's kind of this, why I love working with older students, it's kind of this culmination of all these things that we work on. We work on matching, we work on maybe ABC order, and then to really apply those skills into a more, you know, general setting, a more natural setting is really exciting because you're getting the student ready to potentially have competitive employment. And I really love seeing that application. So I think vocational skills are super important because there's so much communication. Or I have a student who's working on greetings, can definitely greet familiar people, but as soon as they're outside of the classroom, they're not generalizing that skill. And that's such an important, we call that kind of like a soft skill, like something that you need to do, right? I'm sure that we've worked with adults who maybe don't have the best social skills either at work, but it's important because you can get yourself in a lot of trouble if you don't have those types of pleasantries worked on. So that's something that we're working on for that student. So I think really having, if the student has language issues and they need more intense instruction, then that's super important too, but making sure that we have vocational programming and then leisure skill building is really important because if you think about our lives as as adults, and that's what I always try to do. It's like, what is my life comprised of? My life is comprised of work, and my life is comprised of obviously taking care of my kids, but it's comprised of leisure. I have a lot of different things I like to do. I like to work out. I like to spend time with my kids. I like to, you know, play music, things like that, and trying to make sure that our students have those same opportunities and oftentimes may need direct instruction on how to to engage in leisure skills too, making sure that's something that we look at. Yeah, so what are some examples of things that you would do with leisure skills? Yeah, so for leisure skills, I've had students who work on independent leisure skills. So if students, because you think of somebody having competitive employment, maybe they have a 15 minute break. And what would they do during that break time? Now, the iPad is amazing, right? I became a speech therapist before, like, that even existed, I think, as a tool. But, you know, does a student, not every student likes to watch movies, or, you know, do they like to listen to music? It can be really hard to kind of be the detective to say, like, these are things that are important for a student. For people on the outside, they may think, like, well, why would that even be important? But, well, I'll tell you what, it's important for that parent that the parents, right? Let's say that that student has decreased leisure skills and doesn't enjoy the iPad and they have to go see family and it's an hour car ride. Can you think of how horrendous that would be for them? Can you think about, you know, maybe having to go on a family trip and going, staying in the airport? I mean, you know how hard these things are. And if we have like those leisure skills, those things that we can enjoy either independently 
or with others, there's really such a ripple effect. I think that's the important thing to think about too. It's like, we are the speech therapists. We we're advocating for why these things are so important. It's not only important in school, but it's important in all these different environments. And it's really not only going to have an impact on your student, it's going to have an impact on their family life, their access to the community, all those different things. So I've heard, also heard you talk a lot about modified leisure and what does that look like? Yeah, I think modified leisure is so important for students, especially students who are older, because we can teach the student these skills, maybe in a one-on-one -on -one session, and then we can generalize it to a group, and then we could also generalize it to the home environment so they could have some more of those shared experiences with their family and friends. And so a couple of the, the things that I've done with students in the past, I had a student who we played Connect Four, but instead of strategically trying to get four in, for this student, that would have been too difficult. So what we did was he chose a color, either red or black, and he put in a red one, I put in a black one. He put in a red one, I put in a black one. It was cool because I was seeing this student, I've had him in a lot of, di of different uh, training videos that I do and, and for my course, Help Me Find My Voice. So you may be familiar with him. And so we would do that. And then I was able to talk to the parent as well because I saw him also for outpatient therapy. And it was the coolest thing. He told me, oh, you know, they celebrated Christmas. And she said, you know, for Christmas, we bought so-and-so Connect Four so he could play with his younger sister. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. That is more important than, you know, um, it, how it had such an impact on the family that they could actually purchase something for their son that could be shared with them and as a family experience. So that really was exciting. And then another game that I love to modify for my students is Uno, which we most of us have Uno. So what I do for students who are at the matching level is I take out all of those special cards like draw two and skip and reverse. And I put one color, one green one, one yellow, one blue, one red. And then we just make a main pile and we pick and then we match by color. And so that's been really cool. I also have, I made a video model of that. I have a little YouTube channel called ABA Speech. And so I would show my students when we were learning how to play Uno that way, I would show them that video as a video model. And then we would play that that, that game together. And so those are some really easy things that most of us kind of have laying around. And sometimes things just have to be modified for students to be successful so that they kind of enjoy those activities. Yeah, I love that. And it's amazing if it's like, because I think they, a lot of times they have a hard time connecting with peers and other family members and being able to bridge that gap through a game is, I think is really powerful. Um, and I'm also curious because the games obviously have different rules. So do you have any strategies to, because I imagine it would be really frustrating for a kiddo with autism who is used to playing it a certain way and then the peers and family don't know how that is. So how do you communicate that and share that? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I have, you know, in one of my blog posts, I wrote about leisure skills and I have a leisure guidebook that's for older students. And so I also have all these different videos that can be used as video models, meaning you can show the students before you engage in the activity. There's a lot of research that says that that will help students learn skills. So I have another video that's hangman. So for hangman, um, which is a little bit higher, but I would write out the entire alphabet 
And then when a student guesses a letter or points to a letter, then I just cross it off. So instead of having to have all the recall of thinking of a letter and putting it out, you know, or drawing it themselves, I'm, I'm just always trying to think of how can I insert prompts with that being a visual prompt to help this student be successful. Because oftentimes when the students get to be in middle school and high school, we realize that they may never be able to play Uno the correct way. They may never be able to play hangman the correct way. But that doesn't mean that they can't engage in those activities with other people in their environment and, and enjoy themselves and be happy. Yeah, so with like the Uno game, you could just send home the instructions for how to play it. And like the hangman thing, you could make a template and just print that out and send yeah. that home or put it in the classroom. Uh-huh, and that, that I, a long time ago when I first was a speech therapist, there were, was like a little notepad for Hangman, and it was set up that way. It just had the whole alphabet and had the little, you know, picture, and the Melissa and Doug, they're kind of hard to turn over, but there's a Melissa and Doug Hangman activity. There's apps for that. It's something that you can really use easily um, when there's downtime as a parent um, with your students, if it's something they enjoy. Yeah, that could be, like, even if you just had a laminated version, that'd be perfect to bring on the plane or in the car. Right. So cool. So fun. I love it. And then we're getting all that engagement and right. all the good stuff. And then I'm curious, so how would you, like, what would a goal look like if you're working on those leisure skills? Like, do you pick something really specific or, like, yeah. can you get some variations? Yeah, I mean, I think a really good goal would be to, if you've done your inner, you know, your assessment and you determined that leisure skills are something that are a deficit for a student, that you could set a goal for engaging in so many different activities. So maybe, you know, based on your learner's ability to learn, maybe three to six novel activities, they will engage. And then I think what's so important for those types of things that are very specific, maybe we see how they're doing currently. So maybe we play Uno and we take data on, in a 10 minute session, how many prompts does that student need? If that student needs 10 prompts, maybe we say within one IEP cycle, the student isn't gonna engage in a leisure task for, 10 minutes with peers with no more than two prompts. So we want to kind of find out how are they doing currently. And then with our specific intervention with video modeling, direct instruction, shared goal setting with the teacher, what can we expect them to be able to do after one, I think in IEP because I work in a school, but within one year. Yeah, that's super helpful. And then how do you know like, do you, because in the goal, then if you just write, they'll participate in this number, like, I assume you kind of have, like, a menu of different go-to options. How do you figure out which ones are, like, the best choice for a particular student, especially the more challenging ones? <laughs> right. No, that's a really good, that's a really good question. And I have, I have always loved group therapy. That's kind of, like, my jam. And so I have students now that we have just tried different activities together. And this group of students that I'm currently working with really have enjoyed a lot of the different things that I'm telling you. Like we worked on Uno, we worked on Hangman and things like that. And I did, we worked on uh, weightlifting with water bottles. I was kind of talking about that before, kind of, it was really like, that was fun for me because in a former life, I thought I was going to be an aerobics instructor at some point. Um, but I don't see that in the cards now, no time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just try to see like, is it something that the students enjoy? Like, 
two years ago, we did have students who I was trying to teach yoga to, and they just like really did not like it. They were not enjoying it. And so I really do believe in following the student's motivation. So like, what is, what are their preferences? I don't want to teach them something that they're going to hate. I don't want them to have problem behavior and think they're going to get out of every task that maybe is unpreferred, but I really am going to analyze that and say like this leisure activity, this is supposed to be something that's fun. And if this group of students doesn't like this particular leisure activity, then we're going to work on something different. Yeah. And do you have any favorite, like, are there any assessments or tools that help you kind of especially for the students who like sometimes I know I've come across students where it feels like they don't like anything right. so like can yes. you do you have any because I feel like I've heard you talk about something yeah um yeah I mean I think that when we're working with students like that we really need to look at a preference assessment like I've talked about a preference assessment that's something else I've I put in my blog but it's really kind of like finding out what does your student love and enjoy and then trying to which I kind of love that about students who are are hard to reach is kind of analyzing like okay well this kid really likes listening to music so how could I turn that into something that might be a leisure activity like one year with my students we listened to we learned how to operate Spotify and Pandora on the classroom iPads I had the the tech person make sure that was added to every single iPad in the particular classroom and then these students were were a little bit higher so they could understand a little bit more we talked about different genres of music I made them listen to like country music, probably some old school music that I like. And then we practiced getting on Spotify, picking a song. We listened to it as a group. So I kind of like that, that ability to analyze. I had another student who was very difficult, had a lot of problem behavior. And we did something like name that tune. I would look up, I would have the YouTube and she could not see the iPad. And I would pick a song and she would have to guess what it is. And I would pick something like relevant that I knew she loved, like Justin Bieber. This was a couple of years ago. <laughs> and I would pick something that was old school that maybe I liked that I thought she would know. And I just like, I seriously drive around in my car sometimes and think about these students who are difficult to think about what does this student love and enjoy? How could I make this into, because this particular student I'm talking about with that name, that tune really didn't even want to engage in me on a one-on-one -on -one setting. And so we really worked on that together. And then we were able to generalize it to like a very preferred peer in the school. So I love kind of piecing those things together. It's kind of like a puzzle, like what does a student love now? How can we build that into a cooperative activity that would be something they can do and engage with others? and practice their communication skills embedded within that opportunity. So it's really individualized for everybody, but I, I love thinking of these things. Yeah, that's amazing. And I feel like, cause some of the students are more challenging and you're kind of at first glance, you're like, oh my goodness, there's nothing, but there always is something. Like, have you ever come up with a student where you couldn't think of anything? <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, I had a student. This is the same student. But you figured it out. One of my videos. Um, it came to me in the ABA Center. I was eight years old, had no way to communicate, just engaged in problem behavior. That was the only way, unfortunately, he could communicate. And over time, 
didn't like watching YouTube or anything. And over time we discovered that he really liked music. And mm-hmm. so that really was just, it changed his life. It changed his world and him being able to us for us to know what he's motivated by and being able to use that as a reinforcement to him to be able to work on requesting. Um, that's the same student I was telling you that eventually we taught how to play connect for with his sister. But when I first met him, he just engaged in problem behavior would not communicate, would not try to communicate, was very difficult. And now he is able to use his device to request and get some of his needs met. And his family can, took him to Disney World. I mean, it really, over time, it didn't happen overnight. It's been like a seven-year process, but it's completely changed his life. Being able to tap into what he loved and enjoyed and kind of segue that into working on, on leisure skills. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so exciting. Yeah. Um, and then I also wanted to circle back a minute to the vocational types of skills. So how would you, because I loved how you talked about the vocational skills, like your goal might be to work on whatever set of vocation or leisure skills with this level of prompts. And then what would you, what would that look like with the vocational skills? And I know it varies a lot depending on the level of the student, but how would you start to approach that? Sure. So we might say something like the student will engage in three vocational jobs with 100% accuracy or out of so many steps. And so if we're talking about maybe the shredding job, we might have a task analysis, which is just a way to break down that very large skill. So it may be uh, putting on the student's device or having them ask, orient to the teacher, asking, do you have any shredding, getting the shredding walking down to the office, counting out five, that's kind of embedding all that one-to-work correspondence, shredding the items, and then walking back to the classroom. So there's so many different pieces and parts, and we might say, well, the student may need to complete that task analysis, all those steps with 80 to 90% accuracy uh, for so many different consecutive sessions, and then we'll move on to a new job. And so that's typically how we set them up um, in my work settings. Yeah, and do you do the task analysis and everything before you write the goal? Uh, not before yeah. we write the goal. So we may okay. write the goal knowing that competitive employment and vocational sampling is something that's important for the student. And then we will analyze the environment, what the student, you know, at that point when the student's younger, like middle school, and you're doing everything in the kind of school environment, you want to give them different opportunities. So we have students who mm-hmm. make copies, students who, you know, work in the cafeteria, students who do recycling. We one year had students, we have um, police officers in our school, which a lot of schools have. Um, they're so kind. And we they walk around the building and they do like checks, you know, like of the different doors and different areas. And we've had oh some gosh. students walk around with them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How fun is that? Um, and so we just have all different types of things that we had a student once that would check the copy paper and the teacher's lounge and um, would notate how many, you know, reams of paper were left. And we just try to make it really an enriched experience so kids can understand like, this is something I like, and this is something maybe I don't like. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. And I've also heard of, this is kind of a side note, but I've heard of some schools who do like little snack carts for students and or teachers. And that involves like a ton of different skills with the social interaction and money and inventory. Yes, there's so much. Our school does not do that, but we did do something one year we paired with student council and there was a store 
And so our students and the student council students would work together and our students would work on, these were students who had some more academic skills, but they would do inventory and they would get all the different items ready, set up. And you just think about all the different people that you encounter in your job. I mean, I think about all the different communication encounters I have daily um, because I'm just a nerd like that and I analyze things, but I think about people who maybe don't work and then they don't have all those small talk experiences. I mean, I engage in small talk all day. Um, that's why I feel like it's important for some of my students who are verbalizing and things like that and will have competitive employment. We have done lessons on, you know, this is small talk. This is what it is. This is what you can talk about and it's important to do so when you're in a job setting. Because people that don't engage in those things, I mean, I know you know people like that, we all do, you think to yourself like, hmm, that's interesting, right? Maybe they don't like me, right? That can be, or maybe you know, like, okay, maybe that's just not their thing, it's not their strong <laughs> Um, but we have so many embedded opportunities to work on communication that we just don't even think about it. And we need to make sure that our students have those same uh, opportunities. Yeah, and do you do a lot of other community types of things like maybe if they aren't going to like if the team decides they're not doing employment right things for some reason like because you mentioned the library um do you do any other like fast food or grocery store kinds of things yes we have in the past um done things like that but the district that i work in everybody gets to have employment opportunities when they get to the okay that's amazing yeah, yeah, they work with a consortium. So it's like a one uh, general place that takes students from all different neighboring districts. And this particular place just works on vocation. So it's amazing. They, so the kids will go half day to their high school and then they will go half day to this particular place and they work on direct instruction on vocation and they just meet the kids where they're at. You know, every student is working on something different and it's at their particular skill set. So some students with more severe impairments may be working on a task at the table with a paraprofessional with them, while other students may be working within the building with less, you know, less adult supervision because they can. And that's something that we want to get them ready for. And so that's something that is real important. And, and I'm realizing, realizing that maybe not every district has that, but I think that's really, um, really dynamic for students to be able to engage in those types of experiences. That's amazing. Such a cool opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that. Such good stuff. And then, so there's a lot of moving pieces here. You're working on a lot of different skills, keeping track of a lot of different pieces. Um, like, are there any big goal types that you wanted, any other big goal types that you wanted to talk about other than the leisure or vocational? Yeah, I mean, I think another thing that's so important if you're working with students too is to think about the vocabulary that students are working on. So just making sure that students can describe. So if they're working on um, labeling still at that level, that making sure that those those words are all really functional and tied into what they're going to be working on or, you know, have to do with work or hygiene or things that are really important in their life. And then another thing that's super important for students is personal safety. I mean, I see that a lot on social media because I'm always online, I feel like, but, you know, this student cannot answer WH questions and, and that can be so hard for students. So I would urge you if you have students who are working on WH questions to make sure that they really can answer those so important questions like, you know, what is your name? What is your mom's name? What's your address? 
what's your phone number, all those different types of things, thinking it's really important for personal safety. I've worked on that with students who we knew were not going to be able to do that independently, but a lot of my students in the past have worn ID tags. And so some of these students are verbal and they verbalize, but they still are never going to really truly be able to remember that information on their own, but even being able to remember it from looking at that visual because that's so important or knowing to show that visual to somebody should they get lost you know as a student gets older they those things are just things that could happen and so making sure that we think about that as a team as well is really important yeah that's amazing and really thinking about the whole student and their whole life that's that's so cool um, okay cool and so then with all of these moving pieces how do you organize your intervention? Like what does it look like kind of on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, like where are you providing the services? How do you kind of navigate between all of those different things? Yeah, that's a great question. It's super individualized for each student. Most students, I do not see, just currently with my current schedule, I don't see anybody particularly in the speech room. I try to go into the classroom. So the classrooms that I work in, every student has a work area that has their materials and has all of those things readily available. So I love going into the classroom because even though I might just be working with one particular student, I have access to usually talking to that student's paraprofessional if they're around. So when I first meet somebody, if they're new, to the team, I can model how to work on different communication-based goals, or I have a student right now that's working on verbal imitation with a literacy activity. So I change the books every two weeks and we pick targets based on literacy, um, based on echoics that the student can do that can they can verbalize. And so I'll talk to the paraprofessional and say, hey, this is our new book and this is how we're working on it. And I really like being able to model that. And then a lot of my students have vocational goals. So we might work in the classroom for a little bit, and then we're out in the school environment. And then that's most of the session, you know what I mean? So that's one of the sessions. That's kind of how it looks. I have other students I've mentioned that it almost is like a job coaching model where um, it would be for a student who's a little bit higher level, but you know, maybe they have a job within the building and I kind of go in and I just kind of see how things are going and I make sure that they're applying those skills that we've worked on in direct therapy for so long. And so I really love that because it's kind of cool for me to see the student in the natural environment and to make sure they're applying things. And so a lot of the times on those IEPs, I may say, you know, is applying the skills into the natural environment and I will provide feedback and coaching as needed. So if I see something that's a little wonky that the student needs some feedback on, right? Well, we all probably need feedback on something um, that I will provide it to the student and or talk to their teacher about what I've been working on them with. And so that's really basically in a nutshell how my sessions look. Yeah. And do you keep all the visuals for the skills? Because if they're uh shared goals, then the materials would be in their work area and you can just access those. Yeah, so all the materials are typically in the classroom. And then for students who have more intense needs, who are were using applied behavior analysis to really work on their language intervention, they have data binders where we really like graph the data every single day, put a data, uh, data point on a graph so that we can kind of have a visual analysis of, of how this student is doing. And all that information is kept in the classroom so everybody can take data on those same goals. Yeah, and you're like a data ninja with your ABA background. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk like through one example of what 
like one page in the data binder might look like for an example student? Yeah, so we had one student um, this year who was working on labeling functional places. So I talked with the parent about things that were really important for the student to be able to label. So this particular student uh, liked to go to Costco. And so we had pictures of Costco, which if, if you know any of my work, it's really important to show multiple examples. So we printed off three different pictures from Google Images of, of Costco because that really helps the student generalize that. And so what's really nice about the graphs that we're using, um, and people could always contact me through ABA Speech org my website if they would want access to this graph I haven't like put it on the blog yet because it's pretty specific um, but we would work on labeling and so this particular graph I could just circle it would say Costco and I could write the date my initials and then I could write I could circle how the student did that day so if the student we baselined it the very first time and they got zero I would mark that and then subsequent sessions let's say they get 60% 60% 80% 100% I can circle that so in essence every single individual session looks like a circle and you can see exactly how the students do that's what's so important for students with more intense needs is that that graph piece it gives us a real visual analysis of how is the student doing should we continue to work on this target do we need to troubleshoot this target or can we move on to something else yeah and so is this particular student just working on labeling Costco or items in Costco student is working on just labeling Costco because the student goes to Costco and so they were working on labeling functional places and so for them because they go with their family each week that was something yeah. that was to them yeah yeah and then oh so you do you build like a your own deck of images with all the places that they want to work on yeah and exactly. go through that's uh-huh exactly that's yeah that's exactly how we do it so some of the stuff is so specific that the student would we would use google images for that because obviously mm -hmm. you know that's how you would get pictures of costco um and then we would kind of in essence make our own flashcards. that's how a lot of you know places are run when the students especially students with autism maybe have something that's really functional for just them or they have something that's really um individualized to them so we would just kind of make those um in the classroom yeah that's amazing and do you end up spending a lot of time creating materials for your students then? That's a really good question. I mean, that that's kind of why um, I got into this whole space of having a blog and a, a website and all, all these things I do now um, because I created the Action Builder Cards, which is a physical product that I sell because I was spending so much time on Google Images creating pictures. So if you're not familiar with those, there's a hundred cards and they have different examples of actions because a lot of the times maybe I would have a general speech therapy flashcard set and it may have a picture of eating, but I was teaching my student to label eating and then they were labeling ice cream and I wanted to put that together, eating ice cream, eating french fries. I'm thinking of all this bad food, but you know, like things that kids like, eating chips. And so I just, there was like nothing out there, right? It was like the one person, one picture of a kid eating an apple, but that like wasn't doing it for my kids. And so I was spending so much time on Google images. That's why I created those action builder cards because there's lots of different examples. Um, and, and I love that. And people seem to like that product because it saves you so much time because it can get really like time intensive to make stuff. And so I've just tried to make products um, that will save people time and are functional. Yeah. And it, cause you mentioned those are amazing, by the way. Um, so that's one huge time saver. Um, but you also mentioned like you're creating the video models, you're doing the task analysis and 
like I in my head I pictured like pictures of the different steps. Oh, I don't yeah, know no, if you, you do don't that. Have to do the, it really depends on the student, but uh -huh. for the students that I'm working with currently, that visual prompt hasn't been necessary. It's almost okay. like the the repeated exposure to the task with prompting as needed and then fading back that prompt as mm -hmm. the student is doing things more independently. That's why that task analysis is so important because we can see like, oh, you know, I have a student right now that's working on recycling and he's doing great. He's like getting the box, walking down the hall, we're going outside. He gets to the recycling bin and it's hard for him to get, he's got to lift it up and pull, push it in, you know, but that goes back to collaboration because I work really closely with our occupational therapist. So I was, asked the teacher just yesterday, I was like, hey, do we, have we talked to so-and-so about how we should be prompting for that? Because I, I don't know. I don't know the best way to prompt that. So I'm going to talk with our occupational therapist. And it's like, really, that's the part that he's having trouble with. Once we get that mastered, then, you know, he's kind of got that vocational skill. We can move on to something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then for that example, just going back to the data, you would just be keeping track of the number of prompts that he needed to complete that activity. Right. So we have every single step listed out though on a task mm -hmm. analysis on this data sheet. So it would say, you know, um, we'll get the recycling box. We'll walk down the hall. We'll go outside. We'll go to the recycling bin. We'll dump it. We'll walk back inside. <laughs> we'll walk back to the classroom, put the box down instead of throwing it. Okay. Like, um, that was something that we mastered this week. And so once we write out the task analysis, the steps on the data sheet, then every subsequent time that we run that program, then we can just put a plus or minus on the steps. So if we see that a particular step has a minus and the student's not able to get it, then we can really hone in on that step and say like, oh man, the kid needs more direct instruction right on this step. And then once they get that step, they've got it. Yeah. And you just put it back into the sequence. Yep. That's it. That is so cool. <laughs> I like, I want to go work in a high school right now. I'm so excited. <laughs> I love this stuff. It's so amazing. It's so practical and functional. Right. And you really have a way of just breaking it down in a way that makes so much sense. Um, so I'm super excited. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I love, I get jealous when I see other people putting sensory bins and all those fun things on Instagram, but it's just not, it's not what I'm doing right now. You know, I appreciate all those different materials that people make, but it's, um, it's just so different from, from the world that I'm living in once the kids get older, you know? Yeah. But it's so functional and it has such an important impact. Mm -hmm. uh, and you like, I love the strategies that you're implementing and it's like, it's going to change their lives forever, which is like, that's so amazing. So powerful. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. I love it so much. It's great. And then, so we're getting close to wrapping up here, but I'm curious if you, like, do you want to share, you've shared a lot of intervention activities, but are there like one or two favorite ones that you wanted to highlight? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the piece on being part of the vocational process for students and trying to be, I mean, I guess I call it being a detective, but being a detective in your own building as far as, you know, what are functional activities for your student that they could practice their communication and vocational skills in your building? Because if you don't have those relationships with your principal, with the teachers, maybe with the, the administrative assistants, you may not know that these certain jobs need to get to be done. So, I mean, building 
rapport with everybody in the building from the police officer or whatever you know you have going on in your building is so important because everybody really wants to help students to do their best so i would say building those relationships trying to be a detective in your buildings to see how the students could work within their own little building and then you know leisure leisure is so important and something that we didn't um, talk about yet but something else i created that was out of my own need was this game called double up and it's a vocabulary and leisure activity game because I was working and continue to work with a lot of students who are never really going to get past matching picture to picture and I feel like when you're working with older learners something that makes me feel really frustrated is that there isn't a lot of age respectful or age appropriate materials out there it, you know a lot of the vocational materials are from you know 1985 and, and they're old or it's just stuff that this may be on my student's level, but it's not age appropriate. The pictures are not real. It doesn't mean anything to the student. And so I created this game that my students really love and enjoy. And so it's a four person player game and you just, you can match picture to picture. So it has leisure items, there's um, hygiene items. And so if your students are more advanced, they can match picture to associated picture. So we have a picture of a basketball and on your game board would be the people playing basketball. So it's really nice for mixed groups and things like that. And that was another thing I kind of created out of my own need. And speech therapists seem to really like it and life skills teachers too, because I feel like it's just really hard to find materials for students who may be at this level of matching and maybe they're not going to get higher than that level, which at middle school, high school, that's okay. We're just kind of meeting the student where they are, but we want to make sure that the materials that we have are functional and meaningful for our students as well. Yeah, that's amazing and awesome that you get to create all of those things to save us all some time. Definitely. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your time and wisdom. I know I'm walking away inspired and like I seriously want to go apply for high school jobs now because I'm so excited. <laughs> um, but any last takeaways or anything that you wanted to wrap up with? Yeah, just if anybody wants to reach out and hear about any of those nerdy data sheets I was talking about or talk about anything uh, related to vocation and leisure to make sure to um, visit me at www.abaspeech.org. Awesome. And then can they find you on any other social media platforms? Yeah. Yeah. Instagram, it, I'm ABA Speech by Rose. And I definitely am on Instagram every day showing you what's going on in my therapy room and uh, sharing uh, my stories on Instagram stories. So make sure to come on over and like me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time and we'll talk again soon. Okay. Sounds good. See ya. Wow, guys. So Rose definitely did not disappoint. What a wealth of knowledge. I learned so much. I'm really looking forward to implementing some of these strategies with students in the very near future. If you want to find out more, head to the show notes, slpnow.com 13, and that's where you can find all of the links that we'll mention, as well as information on how to earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this pod course. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.